Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. I invite you to join me this morning in the third chapter of Genesis. I want to read verses 22 to 24 as we think together for a few moments about the theme of biblical marriage. And we're going to talk about restoring the marital garden, God being our helper this morning. Genesis 3.22 is a passage, no doubt, that you're familiar with. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. So this is the account of man's expulsion from paradise, paradise lost. Notice the purpose of it is lest man would access the tree of life and live forever. So it's actually a grace that God prohibited Adam from re-entering the garden. He expelled them from the garden and placed an angel, a cherubim, at the entrance with a flaming sword which turned every which way to block their access to the tree of life. Man has been expelled from the garden. Now, when we think of a subject like this, biblical marriage, I know in a mixed congregation like this, we have people at different points in their personal experience. There may be some who aspire to marriage, some who are engaged, some who are newlywed, some whose marriage is struggling, others who have experienced fractures in their marriage relationships, some who have lost their marriage partner to death. And there may be some who, like the Apostle Paul, are called to singleness. And the treatment of a subject like this, somebody might say, does not apply to me. Or perhaps it is uncomfortable to some this morning. Yet I believe that this is a very important and vital subject for the day in which we live primarily because this is a subject that's under deliberate attack in our modern world. We have witnessed over the past couple of decades a moral revolution in our country, no doubt masterminded by intellectuals and social engineers designed to deconstruct God's creation ordinances, his original pattern in terms of gender, sexuality, and marriage. These are issues that comprise the very foundation of morality and social order in civilization. And this long war against God's created order has given way to a kind of moral confusion and insanity in our day that Romans chapter 1 describes as a reprobate mind. Notice the moral judgment, reprobate, that's a moral judgment and the mind, so it's a moral insanity that seems so pervasive in our day. In fact, you can't watch the news, you can't look at 
social media. You can't be exposed to any degree with culture at large today without being brought face to face with some of these perversions of the way God planned his world to operate. And I think this is the reason that it's so critical in our day that you and I, whether we're married or not, it's important that we be firmly grounded in what the Bible has to say on these important subjects. Now, you might say, what does the passage that you quoted this morning in Genesis 3, man's expulsion from the garden, have to do with the marital union? You may remember a year ago last week, Easter of 2022, I delivered a message called Christ the Gardener, in which I used a passage in the resurrection narratives of the New Testament in which Mary perceived him to be the gardener. And I talked about the fact that Christ was crucified on this place of a skull, Golgotha, which was really a very barren place, but John's gospel tells us that next to the place where he was crucified, there was a garden and a tomb there, a garden tomb, where Jesus was interred. And we drew some parallels between Mary's perception of Christ as the gardener with the spiritual story of man as God made him and placed him in the Garden of Eden. But that paradise was lost, and the point that I made was that Jesus Christ, in a very real sense, is the gardener. And he can recreate happiness and peace, the kind that you find in a garden, in the wilderness of this world. Have you ever been to a very barren wasteland, perhaps a wilderness or a desert, and you found that somebody had taken a little plot of ground and they had cultivated a beautiful garden in the midst of the desert? And there is a sense in which that is what our lives are intended to be as Christians in this unfriendly and barren wasteland called the world. You and I, may I say, are intended to continue to live in peace and harmony with fulfillment and enjoyment and happiness, and it's possible through Jesus Christ. So the point is that the blissful state of man as God made him has been lost, and man has been expelled from the garden, but through Jesus Christ, you and I may return to the garden. Now let's look at this garden motif in Genesis 2. We took our text in Genesis 3. If you go back to the previous chapter, Genesis 2, verse 8, we read, And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. Now, Eden's a territory. But God planted a garden in the east part of the place called Eden. And there he put the man whom he had formed. He goes on to talk in Genesis 2 about the fact that a river went out of Eden to water the garden. So from the provincial territory known as Eden, God builds a garden, places the man in it, and a river goes out, which has four heads, he says, and it waters the garden. And he put the man in the garden, says verse 15, to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God gave him this command of every tree of the garden, thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And we know that's exactly what happened in the next chapter, Genesis 3, and that's why man has been expelled from the garden paradise. 
But I suggest this morning, my beloved, that though the original paradise is now inaccessible, that is, the marriage union that God originally created has been complicated by sin. And there is no marriage, it's a fact today, there's no marriage that is exempt from the tensions and conflicts of a post-fall world, a post-Edenic world. Somebody says the best any marriage can hope for since the fall is either to be a barren wasteland or to be a battlefield at worst. Yet I suggest the Bible affirms that marriage can still be a lovely and a fragrant garden. And a passage that carries that garden motif that is interesting to me is in the 128th Psalm. Would you listen to this for just a moment as he talks about the family? And he says, when the husband and the father of the family is a God-fearing person and walks in God's ways, his family, his home life will be like a garden. Listen to this. Blessed is everyone that feareth the Lord, that walketh in his ways. For thou shalt eat the labor of thine hands, happy shalt thou be, and it shall be well with thee. Thy wife shall be as a fruitful vine by the sides of thine house. Thy children like olive plants round about thy table. Behold, that thus shall the man be blessed that feareth the Lord. Now that is a lovely scene, wouldn't you say? Your children are like little olive plants. And your wife is like a fruitful vine by the sides of your house. You see, the family is pictured in the most pleasant and delightful terms when someone is a God-fearing person. Now, perhaps you're here this morning, you say, how, Brother Mike? How is it possible to restore? If we can't return to Eden, then how can we restore the marital garden? We can't get past that flaming sword turning every which way. Well, again, when the Lord Jesus Christ is your gardener, the marriage relationship can be as harmonious and fulfilling and delightful as a garden paradise. So the premise of my message this morning is that Christ, through his gracious work of recreation, can make married couples to enjoy the kind of relationship that is an echo of what marriage was originally intended to be. And in a world like ours that has lost its way, I suggest few areas provide a greater opportunity for a winsome Christian witness as marriage that operates according to God's original pattern. And that's really the key to restoring the marital garden is replicating the architect's blueprint for marriage that we find in the book of Genesis. Interestingly, in Matthew 19.4, Jesus, when he was confronted with this question about when is it right to divorce, you know, the Pharisees approached him saying that Moses and the law gave us a writing of divorcement. And what do you say about it? Jesus takes them back to the beginning. He says, in the beginning, it was not so. And instead of focusing on how to end marriages, we should be going back to the original pattern. You see, the goal is to go back to the blueprint. And let's do that this morning. Let's go back to the original pattern for if we're going to enjoy a garden instead of a battlefield in our homes and relationships, I suggest that the first order of business is to recover the biblical pattern for marriage. Now, Genesis chapter 1 talks about the creation of the man. And then Genesis 2 develops that in specific details. 
Perhaps you've wondered, why does he repeat the creation story in Genesis 2 that he's already talked about in Genesis chapter 1? And this has puzzled a number of scholars, but it's not hard. As Elder Sonny Powell used to say, sometimes when men's ideas confuse you, you just have to use your brain. And it's not hard to understand why he repeats the creation of Adam and Eve in Genesis 2 after the Genesis 1 narrative. Genesis 1 is the general or macro view, and Genesis 2 is the specific or micro view of the creation of man. Let's read the Genesis 1 passage first, and then we'll go to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 1, 26, the Lord said, let us make man in our image. Interestingly, God has been creating everything in his world, and finally he enters into counsel with himself, as it were, because this is going to be the apex of creation. Let us make man in our image. Now, this is something true about human beings that's not true about anything else that God made. Man was made in the image of God. He's a relational being. He's a volitional being. He is a communicative or social being. And like God, he's rational. He can reason from cause to effect and communicate his thoughts in words. Man, unlike animals, unlike rocks and trees and anything else that has been made, is made with a conscience. He's made immortal. There's something about man that will never die. The soul never dies. And man is made in the image of God. And then he says in verse 27, so God created Man in his own image, in the image of God created he him, male and female. He created them. Now notice how man is defined in two genders. Male and female, he created them. So God made man, and man has both a masculine and a feminine dimension. The feminine is expressed in the female. The masculine is expressed in the male. Now, you say, Brother Mike, this isn't... In dispute. Oh, but it is today. Again, as intellectuals and anti-God people have launched their coup d'etat, their revolution against the government of heaven, they've attacked the very foundation of society and civilization. The first few chapters of the Bible are under great assault in the world in which we live. So notice God made men and he made women. He made males and females, two genders. There are hundreds of genders. It's not open for interpretation. And there's a difference between the sexes, but there's a harmony of differences. That is, they are made to complement each other. They are made to go together. The man and the woman, God made them male and female. And then he saw that everything that he had made was very good. Now, Genesis 2 takes this general story and it focuses in on the details. And it says, beginning in the 18th verse, I want you to notice this now. And the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him an help meet for him. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field. And every fowl of the air, you say, I thought he had already done that in Genesis 1. Indeed he had. He's just giving us the micro story, the specific details here. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field. Notice that the animals come from the earth that God had created. 
and every fowl of the air, and he brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. So here's the first science, scientific discipline mentioned in the Bible, and it's the science of taxonomy, in which he names the living creatures. And I don't know how he chose the names. I don't know how he came up with elephant. I don't know how he came up with cattle. I don't know how he came up with deer and antelope and frogs and cats and dogs. I don't know how he came up with all of these animals, but I know that whatever he called it, that was the name thereof. Notice how God has given him freedom. Adam has the authority to name the animals, and God doesn't say, well, just a minute, I think a better name would be this. God has entrusted him with this kind of freedom. And it says that Adam gave names to all the cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found an help meet for him. Now, as these animals are paraded by Adam, here's Mother Possum and Papa Possum. And here is Mother Chimpanzee and Father Chimpanzee. He sees that everyone that he names, every one of these animals has a partner, a compliment, except for him. And I'm sure that Adam felt a certain kinship to these animals. I mean, there was not the tension between man and animal then that there is after the fall. He was able to get along with them. And by the way, that tension, that conflict, that fear between men and animals that happened after the fall, God took it away. He overruled it in Noah's case. Remember when the animals came by two and two to the ark? So God is able to overrule that. He's the creator. But anyway, these animals were not afraid of Adam, and he wasn't afraid of them. So he names the lion, he names the tiger, he names the bear. But he notices that they have a compliment. They have some help for them. But for Adam, it says, there was not found a helper that was meet or fit for him. And I want you to notice what happened. And God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. Now here's the first anesthesia in all the Bible, as God puts Adam to sleep for surgery. And Adam's sleep is such that he doesn't realize what's happening. And God took one of his ribs, and then he closed up the flesh instead thereof. So God takes part of the man that he's already made, and from that part, he creates a helper, one who is a complement to Adam. From the rib, it says, the Lord God made a woman and brought her unto the man. Now, I want you to notice that God first built the woman, and then he brought the woman. He made the woman. He tailors her to fit his needs precisely, and then he brings her to the man. And may I suggest that what we have here is the first wedding service, the first wedding ceremony. What takes place in a wedding is a kind of reenactment of the first marriage service that we read about in the Bible. Now, you see, God is the inventor. He's the author of marriage. This isn't man's idea. Man didn't come up with it as something that would serve his purposes for convenience sake. But this is God's institution. And God is the one who performed the first ceremony. And like the father who gives away the bride, so God makes a woman and brings her in his providence to the man. 
And I think we can learn from this prototype of the marriage covenant in Genesis chapter 2 at least four reasons that God gave marriage. Number one, God gave marriage for companionship. You see that in verse 18 when God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. Now, interestingly, God has said over and again in the creation narrative that it was good. He made the land, he made the flowers, he made the trees, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. But there's one thing that's not good, and it's this, that everyone has a compliment, and everything that God has made has, if you please, an answer. There's a pairing, except for Adam. And the one thing that God said is not good is it is not good that man should be alone. And I suggest that the first reason that God gave marriage is to solve the problem of loneliness. If you look at verses 19 and 20, it says, Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field, and he brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. So as these pairs are paraded by Adam, these animal pairs, Adam evidently begins to feel very much alone, and God notices that he doesn't have what the animal kingdom has, a complement a companion. So God performs this operation on Adam. He puts him to sleep. And the purpose of marriage then is to solve the problem of loneliness. Now, there are a lot of lonely people in this world, and I'm sure most everyone here has felt the pain of loneliness at one time or another. But God gave Adam a companion. Now, there are people who believe that the purpose of marriage is primarily procreation, to have children. I think that's the Roman Catholic position, that the only reason for marriage, that it's a choice of a second rate. You know, if you really want to serve God, the best way to serve God is through a life of celibacy. You know, that's what God has called us to, is to a life of being a nun or a monk or a priest, living in seclusion and just devoting yourself to the Lord. But marriage is second best for those who are not ultimately spiritual. I suggest for your consideration, my friends, that marriage is God's best for his creatures. Marriage is not a second-rate blessing, but it is what God originally gave to the man that he had made upon this earth. Now, I know that there are exceptions to the rule, but what a blessing it is to have a companion, to have a friend. And by the way, marriage is not primarily for the sake of procreation, and neither is it even designed primarily for romantic love. Interestingly, people in ancient cultures did not get married because they had fallen in love. They fell in love in many respects because they'd been married. I was studying recently about Martin Luther in the 16th century. You know, Martin Luther was the German reformer that nailed his 95 theses to the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany, and started the Protestant Reformation. Well, Luther married Catherine von Bora, who was a nun who had escaped from the nunnery and sought refuge in uh, Wittenberg, and Luther eventually married her. Now, he tried to find other suitors for her and had actually uh, chosen several, but she rejected them all. And he became a bit frustrated with her, and he said, we need to find you a husband. She said, I found one. What about you, Dr. Luther? And for the first time, he began to think, and he wrote to a friend and he said, I'm not marrying her because I find her in the least bit attractive. <laughs> I mean, that's a great romantic way to start a relationship. But he said, I'm marrying her just to spite the devil 
and the Pope. <laughs> the only reason I'm doing it is just to spite them. But you know, after being married for a while to her, Luther did fall for her. In fact, he was hopelessly in love with Katie. And they had a wonderful relationship together for many years. But you see, a lot of people think marriage is only for procreation or even for romantic love. But I suggest God's first purpose in marriage is not for romance. In fact, if you build a marriage on romance, it won't last for very long because those cow eyes that begin the relationship, you know, I can't live without this person. I mean, before long, the humdrum and routines of daily life set in, and it's hard to sustain that level of romance. Now, we ought to do our best to maintain it. You know, Isaac and Rebecca, it says, were sporting that is, they were playful with one another. And you read Solomon's song, the Song of Solomon, and it's evident that there is a romantic dimension. Romance is important. And we ought to make it a point to try to continue to maintain that first love by doing the kinds of things that we did early on in the relationship and making extra effort. But you know, it doesn't take long between morning breath and a man in a bad mood and before... You know it, the beauty of the wedding service has given way to the routines of Monday through Saturday of real life in a real world. And the purpose of marriage primarily is not romantic love. I dare say there are few people who can sustain that kind of euphoria that you feel early on in a relationship over the long term. There are few people. Now, it'll come back. It'll come back if you're walking on a beach or watching a beautiful sunset or enjoying a nice romantic meal together on special occasions as you reflect back on the beginnings of your life together and how God has been so good to you. It will return. Those feelings will return. But may I say feelings are like the tides. They come in and then they go out and they fluctuate. But may I say where there is a marriage that is built on best friendship on companionship, when this person has become the one person that you know will be loyal to you, that you have somebody to accompany you on your journey, may I say that's the most basic need for mankind. And to be able to look at your partner and to say, we share something that no one else shares. We know each other with an intimacy that no one else knows. We have a history together that no one else can possibly understand. That, my friends, is what marriage was given to accomplish. I'm sure that you would agree with me that many relationships today operate at merely a superficial level, just on the surface. But the marriage relationship is meant to satisfy this desire within our hearts for deep intimacy, for deep fellowship. 1 Peter 3, 7 talks about how husbands and wife should know each other, should dwell with each other according to knowledge. That is, get to know this person through and through. And where there is that kind of understanding and familiarity, the result is safety, or it should be trust, mutual trust, understanding, and loyalty. Interestingly, there's an illustration of this kind of marital loyalty in the little book of Ruth, the story of Ruth and Boaz, which is one of the loveliest stories in all the Bible. Boaz was a good bit older than Ruth, but she is a destitute widow. 
And Boaz is watching her and he makes overtures, not with any ulterior motive, but with a genuine desire to sustain her, to help her. He feels compassion and sympathy for her, so he gives her extra. He tells his harvesters to lay up some handfuls of purpose for her. He allows her to glean in his fields and he gives her the extra handfuls of purpose. And one of the things that he admires about her is that she's loyal. This Moabitous damsel is loyal to her mother-in-law, Naomi. She's come from her homeland. She's in a foreign country. She's with people that she's never known, that she's not kin to. But he watches her loyalty and dependability. And by the way, the word in the book of Ruth that occurs over and again is the word loving kindness. The Hebrew word is hesed, which means loyal love. Love that is loyal to a fault. And that, my friend, is a solid foundation for marriage. So God gave marriage for the sake of companionship. Secondly, God gave marriage for personal fulfillment. Notice in Genesis 2.23, it says, Adam said, when God brought Eve to him, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And I want you to notice these are Adam's first recorded words. And I read them for many, many years and never noticed the word now. This is now, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And the word now literally means at last. Now, I don't know how long Adam has existed without Eve. Maybe this is the same day that God has created him and he's named all of the animals. And it may be the very same day or it could be that he's been around alone without companionship for a few days or maybe even a week or so. I don't know. But it hadn't been very long. I think we would agree with that, that this is early on in the creation story. But yet Adam says, at last, (laughs) this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And what he means by that is that he's been naming the animals. But these animals he's realized are not designed to bring him fulfillment. He might have thought, well, I think just my dog and I could live together. I could find fulfillment in a dog. But he realizes that the dog will not communicate. You know, he can talk to the dog, but the dog doesn't talk back. And there's something that just doesn't fit his needs in the animal kingdom. But now, Adam, when he wakes up from this surgery that God has performed on him, he says, at last... Now, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. You see, these animals are not designed to bring him fulfillment, but suddenly when he awakes and sees the woman, he begins to sing in true Etta James fashion, at last, my love has come along. (laughs) My lonely days are over and life is like a song. Indeed, my friends, this is the ultimate psychological fulfillment as he sees her and he basically says, wow, this is what I've been waiting for. I suggest, my friends, that there's even an aesthetic kind of fulfillment and delight in marriage as we see it in verse 25, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. He's made his compliment. His other half, the one who fills him, and completes him. Now, I hope you brethren wouldn't be upset if I were to say this morning that the fact is you're only half you, and I'm only half me without a compliment. 
But God has built this woman and then brought her to the man, and she is so tailored to his needs that all of his desires and needs are met in her. And then I want you to notice not only is marriage for companionship and personal fulfillment, and there is a fulfillment or enjoyment that comes in marriage, and it's not wrong at all, but I want you to notice marriage is given by God for support and assistance. Verse 18, I will make a help, a helper, he says, meet for him. Now that word meet means suited for, fitted to, a complement of. What Adam is saying when he looks at Eve is, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. That is, we, we match. She's exactly what I need. And he says, she shall be called woman because she's taken out of the man. That is, she's part of me. And God has given her to me because I can't do it alone. I can't make it on my own. I need a helper. Now, perhaps there are exceptions to this rule, but as a rule, I suggest most people need help in life. I know I do. And marriage equips us with someone to help us, someone that makes it to where we're able to function. The book of Ecclesiastes puts it like this, two are better than one. For if one falls, the other can lift him up. And if one is cold, the other shall warm him. And the fact is, perhaps you think, I don't need anyone else. I am self-sufficient. But in marriage, people can be more together than either of them can ever be alone. And then marriage is given, fourthly, for commitment. Not only for companionship and fulfillment and support, but it's a covenant of commitment. Verse 24, And for this cause, God says, A man shall leave his father and mother, and cleave, notice leaving, then cleaving, cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Now the word cleave means to stick like glue. It means to be attached to one another. And here I suggest is the idea of a radical commitment. You know, when two people are married, they take vows. And vows are legal promises. Vows are oaths. The Bible tells us to be careful about taking oaths, you know, don't, don't just do it in a cavalier way because God is going to hold you to your words. God takes our words seriously. Somebody says, oh, I didn't mean it. I shouldn't have said that. Well, then don't say it if you don't mean it because by thy words thou shalt be justified and by thy words thou shalt be condemned, says the Bible. And the scriptures tell us that if you're going to take a vow, you better make sure it's for something very serious. It's better not to have vowed, says Ecclesiastes chapter 5, than to vow and to break your word. God does not look kindly on perjury or dishonesty. Therefore, when we take a vow, we're saying this is a radical commitment. You know, in a marriage service, the preacher or the JP usually says something like this, we're here before God and these witnesses. In other words, other people are listening Do you make this radical commitment, but God is also listening. And when you take a vow, you're saying, I can't promise you the world, but I'm giving you myself. I give myself away. And it's a radical commitment. And that is expressed in a one flesh union. From that point forward, God sees the married couple 
not as two separate entities going in their own direction, but as one flesh. And the secret to finding fulfillment in the marriage relationship is to make that one flesh union a very practical thing in the way that you live, the way you think, the way you approach daily life. Now, I think you would agree with me that people today are very self-absorbed and self-obsessed and often unwilling to make a radical commitment to another person. Self-concern and self-focus, which is the religion of our day, you know, the me religion. I'm going to do it my way. I've got to be myself. I've got to realize my own potential. That's the very opposite of this commitment to give myself away for another person that is so essential in marriage. Now, you look at these four reasons that God gave marriage, companionship, personal fulfillment, mutual support, and radical commitment. And may I say that if a marriage is going to function properly, it's got to conform to this biblical pattern. Anything contrary to that, and that's where the world has gone so wrong, is they've tried to redefine it. They've said, no, we're not going to be committed. We're going to have a marriage of convenience, an open marriage. You do your thing, I'll do mine. And my friends, that won't ever work. Only God's way will work. He made the game. He made the rules, and compliance with his laws is what is necessary in order for a marriage not only to survive, but to sing, for it to be a garden, if you please. You say, Brother Mike, my marriage has been a battleground. Well, I understand. You put two sinners under the same roof, you've got an explosive force more powerful than TNT. But the way to get away from the battlefield and back to the garden, my friends, is to go back to the original pattern that God gave for marriage in Genesis chapter 2. Now with this biblical vision of marriage in view, let's go to the fifth chapter of Ephesians in the New Testament. And in Ephesians 5, we have perhaps the premier New Testament passage on a Christian marriage. Now marriage was not originally a Christian institution. We don't marry people in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. It's not an ordinance of the church. Marriage is a creation ordinance, not a redemptive ordinance. But Ephesians chapter 5 indicates that only a Christian marriage, that is a marriage that's built on each party's relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, a marriage where there are three involved in the marriage. The husband, the wife, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And as the husband stays in touch with the Lord Jesus Christ, and as the wife stays in touch with the Lord Jesus Christ, it's possible for the husband and wife to live together in peace and harmony. Here's the secret to the marital garden, to a marital paradise, if you please, that's more akin to the garden than it is to a battleground. Ephesians 5 indicates that it's only a Christian marriage that has been recreated by God's grace in Christ that is truly capable of recovering the garden paradise that our first parents enjoyed. And before you look at the passage that we usually look at, Ephesians 5:25, husbands love your wives, and so forth, go back to the first verse in Ephesians chapter 5, the context here, where we hear the apostles say, be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. And the word followers means imitators or images, images of God and Obviously, there's an echo from the Garden of Eden in that language. Man was made to be God's image bearer, the apex, the glory of his created order. And now he says to the Christians at Ephesus, I want you to be images 
of God as dear children, just like a child is the spitting image of its parent. You know, just as you can look at the child and see the father in the son. So, my friends, you and I are to be images of God in this sense by walking in love, he says, as Christ also hath loved us. What Paul is saying here is Christ is restoring you to the way things originally were in respect to marital harmony, purity, and enjoyment. And like Christ, we should walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us an offering and a sacrifice. This is advice that is critical to a solid marriage. Now I want you to notice the contrast in the next verse, Ephesians 5, 3, between walking in love and sexual immorality. To walk in love means that fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. And then you move on down in the chapter and we learn that this love that should characterize our hearts as followers of Jesus Christ, as Christian people, should manifest itself in the marriage relationship in terms of mutual submission, verse 21, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Now notice that's a mutual kind of submission, submitting yourselves to one another. In the marriage relationship, submission or deference, deferring to the other person is crucial. Sister Lori says, uh, Michael, could you help me? Could you carry the garbage out? What if I say, no, that's not my job. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm right in the middle of my favorite television show or the game that I was watching. What if I don't take it on the chin, swallow my pride and say, yes, ma'am, I'll defer to you. You say, well, she doesn't have any right to ask me to do something. I'm my own person. You see, if two people are going to live together, they've got to learn to give, to defer, to submit to the other person, to be willing to help. Now, if she were to say, would you uh, do the dishes? I'd have to say, no, that's not a man's. No, I wouldn't either. <laughs> Love demands that I submit to her as well as her submitting to me. Then he goes on in the next verse and he says, this love manifests itself not only in mutual deference, but in the wife's willingness in an official capacity to follow her husband and respect him. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. And then verse 33 says, let the wife see that she reverence or respect her husband. By the way, if you're thinking about marriage, I would encourage you ladies here today to ask yourself the question, is this someone that I respect? Now, I know he's not perfect, but does he have some features that you admire and respect, some things about him that you truly respect? Is this someone that I respect and someone that I could see myself helping as we move forward in life, on the journey of life? Someone that I'm willing to follow. Because the most crucial thing for the wife, as far as God is concerned, is to be willing to help. Not to take the lead, but to be willing to follow him, to help him, to be his teammate in life. Love manifests itself in that attitude. And then from the husband's perspective. You say, well, that's awfully hard. The poor wife, she's got a lot on her if that's what's required of her. I'll tell you, my friends, in my opinion, the husband's responsibility is even more demanding because he's called to see Christ's sacrifice on the cross as the incentive for and the model of his love for his wife. 
He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And I have to tell you, I don't know that any of us have ever gotten that perfectly right. Love my wife just as Christ loved the church. I've got a long ways to go. And I'm sure if you're honest with yourself and honest before God this morning, my friends, you would say I do as well if you're a man in a marriage relationship. I want you to notice the tenderness of the words nourish and cherish in verse 29. Let the husband nourish and cherish his wife as he nourisheth and cherisheth his own body. In other words, there's to be, in a very practical sense, a tenderness and a self-sacrifice. Now, perhaps you're a man here today and you say, Brother Mike, I'd sacrifice for my wife. I'd die for her. My question is, will you live for her? You heard the story about the man that was bragging to his wife. He said, honey, I love you so much, I'd die for you. I'd throw myself in front of a train to save you. I'd step in between you and a speeding bullet in order to spare you. I'd die for you. She says, well, honey, that's really nice, but right now, will you help me do the dishes? I mean, that, you know, uh, no, I won't do that, but I know my friends, that's the kind of love and self sacrifice. Now, God's pattern works. I believe a Christian marriage is to function as a mirror of the love relationship between Christ and His church. That's what Ephesians 5 is saying to us. And when a marriage functions according to the biblical pattern, and finds its identity in the Lord Jesus Christ, the home and family may very well be as lovely and as happy and as serene as a garden paradise like our first parents enjoyed before sin marred the lovely scene. Again, as I started this morning, I know there are people at varied points in their personal journeys here today, some who are single, some who are widowed, some who are struggling in their marriage relationship, I'm telling you, dear friends, that in a world where the biblical order of things as God made them is being challenged on every hand, it's important that you and I think biblically about it and that we labor to implement the principles of God's Word in our personal relationships so that our lives truly will be a shining testimony, a shining light to a watching world. And this world may hate the gospel that you preach, and they may reject the name of Jesus Christ that you wear. But if they see the kind of peace and happiness and unity, the garden that you've built in your home, that may in fact be the greatest testimony that any of us could give to a watching world.